Well, good morning, church family. Hey, today's teaching will put us halfway through our current series uh, titled Relationship uh, Killers. Uh, and we know that so much of our well-being is connected to con- the condition that our relationships are in. So we're taking a look at a few of the traits that can uh, honestly just destroy and dismantle our otherwise positive relationships. And today we're going to look at an incredibly dangerous relationship killer, this uh, an assassin that I think uh, above all else, the, the world oddly champions and parades around our culture as if it were a positive force. It's a killer today we're going to talk about that generates billions, literally billions of dollars of revenue despite its savage repercussions. It's this habit that lurks, uh, waiting and willing to catch any of us, and I literally mean any of us, in its trap. And some of us know all too well how susceptible we are to what we're going to talk about today, while I think a handful of other of us, we think we're beyond the risk. And so what I'd like to, to do today before we, we dive into the topic is, is to do a little bit of a quiz. And we're going to do a quiz because I think that this quiz, if we are being honest, uh, the findings of it will reveal how likely we are to fall victim to today's subject. And I want to be clear before we introduce this quiz that uh, there's, there's no reason to feel shameful. There's no reason to feel uh, guilt-ridden if, if this test here, this quiz today reveals that you're more at risk than you previously thought. Right? If you're, if you're watching at home, you don't have to look at the person in the room. Go to separate rooms right now. You don't have to be around each other. You don't have to feel shame whatsoever. No embarrassment. With one simple question, uh, we can determine if you're at high risk for today's relationship killer. And so, and so here it is. Here's the one question. Do you currently have a pulse? Do you currently have a pulse? If you answered yes to this question, then whether you want to believe it or not, you are 100% susceptible to the destruction of lust. If you have a pulse, you are 100% susceptible to the destruction of lust. And now, hear me out, I know we are a multi-generational church, and I love that, and, and I know some people, some at 9 a.m., they're looking at me and they're thinking, oh, Josh, honey, the steam left that engine a long time ago. Uh, lust, the risk, of that's on the other side of the hill for, for, for me, right? Some of us think it doesn't apply to us in that regard, while others of us, we think that the risk of lust doesn't apply to us because it's never something that we have previously struggled with. And I think that's where a lot of us of all ages tend to get it a little bit wrong. Now, now certainly uh, our lust's target can be erotic, and its relationship-killing resume is well distinguished in that regard. But to limit lust solely to just one area of our life is to let our guard down in the other places where lust can just wreak havoc. Now, a basic biblical definition of lust reads this way. Passionate, inordinate desire for something, often erotic in nature. Passionate, inordinate desire for something, often erotic in nature. And so today, as we talk about lust and its risk in our lives, we're we're going to naturally lean more into that often section because of how significant of a risk it poses to our lives. It's an area where it can do the most damage. But lust can do damage in other areas as well. In the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, which is the second book of our Bible, we see a popular list of guidelines that God asks his people to follow during this point in time. We call them the Ten Commandments. 
And not even the Ten Commandments limits this idea of lust solely to that which is erotic in nature. Now, God's command says, you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not cover your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And, and that word that we see here used for, for covet, it's actually a Hebrew word uh, called shemad. And that Hebrew word shemad is used over 20 times in the Bible, and it's always attached to this idea of lust. Uh, shemad is defined as a feeling so strong that it's compelling. It's, it's a desire that, that's so gripping and entrancing that you cannot help but mentally go down the path of wanting to have whatever it is in your life, whether that's a, a person or a possession. It, yeah, certainly it may be that guy or girl that you're lusting after, but it also could be, and in God's eyes, that, that house. That donkey or, or ox. I don't think any of us came in with that struggle, but it's probably not a donkey or ox, but it could certainly be that purchase that we're lusting after. That car, that house, that, that electronic, whatever it is where we're like, oh, if I could just have that, then my life would be complete. You see, God, the creator of our, our bodies and everything in this world, he wasn't even willing to relegate the damage of lust solely to that which is erotic in nature. And so as we go throughout today's teaching, let's be sure to not do that as well. As I mentioned, that most of our time will center around how lust impacts us sexually because of the damage it can do. But let's make sure that we're willing to grow today by, by using this time wisely to confront all it is that we lust after. What is it that, that we in our lives, we have such an excessive, unhealthy passion for that it poses a risk and damage that could be done to the relationships we keep? Uh, for, for, for you, that, that, that rare individual, maybe, you're, you're saying, you know what, you know, I, I don't struggle with anything. Lust has never been an issue of mine. Well, tell us your secret, right? First off, tell us your secret. I'll get off the stage and let you come up. But if you've never struggled with lust in your life and you never anticipate you will, I promise you, you know somebody who does. And so stay engaged today. Stay tuned in because you have no idea how much you could use God's scripture and what we're going to talk about today to help that person in life that's struggling with lust, whether that's sexually or in any other avenue. Now concerning lust, American radio broadcaster Paul Harvey, he once uh, told of a story of how an Eskimo uh, kills a wolf. How an Eskimo kills a wolf. I know it sounds strange at first, and even as he described this, it sounds a little grim. But I think it offers great, great insight into the, the consuming, self-destructive nature of lust. And so take a listen to this. He says, first, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue, nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more. 
until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. When I read that this week, I thought, I have never heard of such an illustration that describes lust so perfectly than this one right here. And this, this narrative by Paul Harvey, it gives us fresh imagery to a scripture we find in the book of James, which tells us, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. For some of us, the desire, maybe it's that lust for contentment that is so strong that we go out in our lives and we look all across the world's landscape, even to our own detriment, to try to find our contentment. We try to find it through purchases we we lust after, additions we lust after, changes that we lust after in our life. And we neglect that true contentment comes from God alone. But for many of us, the, 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 the greatest risk of lust is sexual. And so we must talk about it, especially since it's something that we see Jesus speak on during his ministry. At one point, Jesus is sitting down with his disciples and he he tells them, he says, So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus knows that, that, that God has given us sex as a gift, and sex is not the problem. The gifts of God are never the problem. It's how we choose to misuse those gifts. That is the issue. And in this case, it's lust and our sinful pursuits that could put our eternity at risk if we just willingly go down that path over and over and over again, trying to satisfy that desire. Listen to these words from Richard Exley. He writes, Lust is not the result of an overactive sex drive. It is not a biological phenomenon or the byproduct of our glands. If it were, then it could be satisfied with a sexual experience, like a glass of water quenches thirst, or a good meal satisfies the appetite. But the more we attempt to appease our lust, the more demanding it becomes. There is simply not enough erotica in the world to satisfy lust's insatiable appetite. When we deny our lustful obsessions, we are not repressing a legitimate drive. We are putting to death an aberration. Lust is to the gift of sex what cancer is to a normal cell. Therefore, we deny it, not in order to become sexless saints, but in order to be fully alive to God, which includes the full and uninhibited expression of our sexual being within the God-given context of marriage. We're going to say it time and time again, sex is not the issue. Acting on lust and further misapplying the gift of God, that is what the issue is. Yet it's so strange because we live in a world where billboards and magazines, commercials, television, social media, they all provide these visual triggers that that beg us to lust. And we even have these little handheld devices, our, our phones, which right there at our fingertips, we can be on the World Wide Web lusting within seconds. It's not an easy bout fight. Listen to a few of these statistics from the recoveryvillage.com. Say 25% of all internet searches are erotic. 25% of all internet searches are erotic. 35% of downloads from the internet are pornographic. 40 million Americans say they regularly visit porn sites. And, and who knows the amount of people who don't admit to doing it. The largest consumer group of online porn is men between the ages of 35 and 49. 
Let's be careful and not make this just a male issue because it's not just a male issue because one-third of all internet porn users are women. And as you could imagine, the impact of such lust, whether generated by our own mind, our own thoughts, or, or through the images we place in front of us, it negatively affects our relationships in all kinds of different ways. You can read the unbelievable amount of studies that show how lust... Is, is typically leads to re- relationship dissatisfaction. How lust typically leads to mistrust, leads to mistrust. How lust typically leads to infidelity. And let's be careful. If, if we find ourselves here today and we're not yet in a relationship, I don't think you're off the hook for the consequences of lust. Because lust leads to the degradation of our expectations. It just, we degrade others so much and it leads us to believe through that degradation that the other people, a, a, a creation of God. Lust can lead us to believe that that person is there for our pleasure and our pleasure alone. But let's be clear. People are not consumables. People are not consumables. And we live in a world that certainly pushes that on us to the detriment of our own relationships. But the Bible is so clear on where it stands on lust and the destruction that it can bring in our relationships, even giving us examples that we can learn from so we can avoid its trappings in our lives. And one of the most popular one of those stories is is the story of David and Bathsheba that you can find in 2 Samuel. As we get to 2 Samuel, uh, at this point, David is a king. So David has this high position over God's people and not even a high position, not even leading God's people, uh, help him to avoid making one of the greatest mistakes in his life. The book of 2 Samuel tells us in verse 1 that in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. And they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now a little bit of history that People in the ancient Near East, they, they typically wanted to fight battles in the spring uh, rather than the winter. Uh, because the cold months, it, it endangered the soldiers quite a bit more, and it also required to travel with a lot more resources. And so rather than going out himself, which is what always happened, David sends Joab, a military commander, out to go to the battle with the Ammonites. David stays back, and this historically speaking, is completely abnormal. Abnormal. Biblically speaking, this is completely foreign. And we don't know it for sure, but it makes you wonder if this is our first subtle hint that something is amiss in David's life. We don't know, but it just makes me wonder because of how abnormal it was for someone such as David to stay back and say, no, no, why don't you go and fight the war? I've got stuff to do here. So while he's at home, it says late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. So at this moment, right here, David still has a choice. He has a choice. And every single one of us, it doesn't matter how far you are into it, when we come to the point of of lust, every single one of us in that moment, we still have a choice. For David, he could turn his eyes. Oh. Right? David could fall on his knees, close his eyes, and and pray to God. Heck, David could just take the stairs. Right? There's a thousand different things that David could do to get himself out of this situation. 
He has a choice. And despite the many temptations that we all face, we always have a way out. You may think you don't, but, but, but hear me out. If you struggle with lust, you find yourself on the brink of it. You always have a way out if you want a way out. When it comes to lust, you have a way out if you want a way out. And David could have had hundreds, if not thousands of ways out. But instead, in verse 3, it says, He, David, sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah was actually one of David's most elite soldiers who was out fighting the battle on David's behalf because David didn't want to go for some reason. So Uriah is literally out fighting the king's battles while the king wanders around the rooftops after a nap. Now, now once again, David finds out who this woman is, but there is yet another opportunity right here for David to shun lust and avoid temptation. The temptation that if he gives into can have a drastic effect on his life and the family of Uriah and Bathsheba. There's always a way out if you want a way out. But unfortunately, as most of us know, for whatever reason, David didn't take any of the outs provided. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. When she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now, we don't know David's thoughts, but, but I wonder if David thought this would be the end of it. Right? This is it. Like, I'm just going to give in this one time. I'm going to make this mistake, but it's going to be the end of it. No one's going to know what's happened. Everything's going to be fine. And I know a lot of, a lot of us, we, we think lust is just this one-time thing. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give in. I'm going to feel bad, but it's just this one time. Nobody's perfect. But I can tell you from personal experience and from working with people for many years that, that lust never says that's enough. Lust never says, hey, that's enough. Lust never taps you on the shoulder, whispers in your ear and says, hey, let's, let's cut it out. This isn't who you want to be. Lust just never says that's enough. And with it comes a lot of repercussions. Let's think about David, for example. You know, David probably didn't expect that, oh, just this one-time mistake that, that Bathsheba would get pregnant, but she did. He probably didn't think that, that this whole one-time thing would lead him down a path where he would actually arrange for Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, to die during a battle. David had him murdered. He probably didn't think, well, lust will allow me to become that type of person, but, but it did. I'm sure David thought, well, nobody's really going to know. Like, no one's going to have any idea. It's just that it's this one-time thing. But David didn't expect that, that Nathan, a prophet of God, would come and, and confront David on his behavior. It's probably just a one-time thing, David may have said, but I doubt that David expected that that one moment of freedom acting on his lust would be so detrimental to his family. And you can read through 2 Samuel and see how it tore a family apart for this moment in time. But despite his lust, despite his sin, despite the way he had messed up, there was still hope for David. And if you feel like that you are stuck in the grasp of lust, I want you to know that not all is lost. There is hope for you too. I've seen so often how the world has just championed lust. It's okay. Everybody does it. But yet it's almost like Christianity has remained to keep it very, very shameful. 
Sometimes feeling as if it's irrecoverable or it's this sin that you can never admit you're struggling with because people are going to think so different of you. But listen, that is not how God thinks about it. And your spiritual life will be so much greater if you're more concerned about what God thinks than what other people think. David had a future. David had a future seemingly after he lost the battle. And and so can you, no matter what battles you've lost or how far in you are. Because there's always a future, despite any of our failures, no matter how great they are. If we just turn to God, you may have to turn other people down while you turn to God. But no matter what you've done, no matter how tight lust has you, there's always a future when you turn to God. And this is exactly what David did. And this is what we may need to do as well to preserve our relationships, both with God and with others. Psalm 51, it's a psalm of David. David wrote it. And a funny little side story, a couple of years ago, this Christian camp said, hey, will you come and speak to our teens one night? And I was like, yeah, they're like, do you want to see the list of, of scriptures? And I'm like, no, like, just give me what no one else wants, right? I was like, how, what, what am I going to get, like John 3, 16? You know, something like that. Not even kidding you. They're like, hey, you have Psalm 51. I'm like, oh, why does that sound familiar? A Psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Probably the last thing I want to talk to a bunch of teenagers about. But there I was talking about the birds and the bees. Um, but, but Psalm 51, this is how David responds to God after his situation with Bathsheba. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. David tells God, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight and you will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. And I love what David, in response to his lust, in response to his actions, I love what he says here in verse 10 to God. He says, God, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. And what a beautiful prayer if you've struggled with lust. If you've just let it uh, wash over your life, just, just go to God. God, create in me a clean heart. Renew a loyal spirit within me. And I love how he finishes here. He says, do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And, and, and get this. He says, make me willing to obey you. Make me willing to obey you. What I love about Psalm 51 is that it shows us David was willing to to look at his lust. and He was able to look at his actions and he didn't just take responsibility for them. He didn't just say, I get it. I'm at fault. I need to change. No, he took all of that to the Lord. And he says, this is me. Here's my mess. Here's why I'm trapped. Help me be willing to obey you. I want to be different. I want that joy back. And in that moment, David found forgiveness. In fact, the same prophet that that came to call David out on his behavior also told David, the Lord has forgiven you. 
And maybe that is what some of us need to hear today. That, that despite the lust and despite the ways it's wrecked our private life, despite the ways it's wrecked our public life, the Lord is willing to forgive you. People may not, but the Lord is willing to forgive you if you go to him just as David did. And I would encourage you, whether you're here or you're at home watching or watching this at a later time, to, to be honest with God. Go to him and, and be honest and say, God, this is how lust has controlled my life. This is how it's killing my relationships. This is how it's affected my relationships. And just ask him for forgiveness. And be encouraged by, by these words here now from the Apostle Paul. He says, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Lust can be such a lonely path, you think it's just you, and Paul's be like, no, no, we're all imperfect, we're all jacked up, we're all sinful, we're all capable of messy things. And he says, don't you understand the temptations in your life? You may feel alone, but they're no different from what other people experience. But here's the most important thing, he says, God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. The way that lust is impacting your life, if it is, it's undoubtedly a burden. But it's nothing other people haven't experienced before. You're not this odd duck. It's not, not a battle that God's never had to fight before. For thousands of years, people have fought this battle and God has helped them overcome it. You are not alone. You are loved. Despite how lust has controlled your life, you can be forgiven and you can have a brighter hope than you ever imagined. Now to help lead you towards that, that better hope, if you're watching online, uh, you may have to, at the end of this teaching, you can click the X out of the video or at the end of the service and there's a notes tab. And in that notes tab, you're going to find a lot of different resources available to help you or your loved ones towards a brighter future if you're battling lust. There's going to be some tools there. Um, some resources to help you in that battle. And for those of us in this room, you can go to fortchristian.org slash latest messages, fortchristian.org slash latest messages. And uh, beginning this afternoon, you can have those resources as well. If you're on our church email list, um, tomorrow morning, you'll get an email from me that will have those resources right there in your inbox. We don't want you to feel alone. We want you to know you're loved. You can be forgiven. There can be a different life. Things don't have to be the way they've always been if you struggle with lust. If you're, if you're willing, reach out. Ask our pastors for help. I can promise you our faces will not turn red no matter what you tell us. Uh, we're here to love you as well as your church family. And so let's close out today's teaching just by going to God and, and praying about lust and this lust that is so easily controlling. Let's ask God for his power. Let's ask him for his grace as we, we navigate through a world that is just trying to promote it and shove it in our face. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful. I know we are so thankful that our struggles, they are just not foreign to you. And through your power at work in our lives, through your forgiveness, through your grace, through your mercy, there is hope for those of us caught in the trappings and the repercussions of lust. May those of us who struggle with, with, with it today and struggle with it in our lives, may, may we use uh, this teaching as a loving nudge back towards you and uh, to learn to rely on your love, your faithfulness, and, and those that we trust to help us in this battle. In transparency and humility, may we, we walk away from the darkness and shame that, that lust can throw over us. 
know, undoubtedly, many of us know of someone who has struggled with or, or had their life drastically altered because of lust. May we not look down on them. We ourselves are not perfect. Who are we to judge? But may we put our arms around them and, and help them along in their journey. God, we are thankful that there is hope for us and that things don't have to be the way they've always been. There is hope. You are love. Thank you for being a chain-breaking God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.